Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. So today's episode is something a little bit different, but I'll get to that in a second. I'm actually really excited about it. But I will get to it in a second because first, of course, I want to reiterate that Phoenix Rising is beginning in just about a week and a half. We start on February 6th. And bottom line, if you are getting divorced, you need this program. We are going to cover just about everything you need to know for how to get divorced particularly if it's high conflict, if you've been in an abusive marriage and you're trying to shift your way out of it, this program is going to be vital, vital in supporting you in getting to the other side. We're going to talk about how to set boundaries with someone that you've never set them with before, how to keep communication strictly about your kids, no matter how they're trying to communicate with you, how to document abusive behaviors to better present your case in court, how to protect your kids from an abusive co-parent, and really mostly how to begin to feel empowered and free even during this really turbulent time. Phoenix Rising is a group coaching program. So this is a collective of women going through this together led by me. You get all of my expertise and hands-on connection to your process, but you also get the benefit of the collective of women going through this at the same time. And perhaps with you know different knowledge than you have about various things, right? It's one of the beauties of group coaching programs is that somebody has experienced something you're going through already and has the experience, the strength, and the hope to pass on to you so that you can use it, right? You can use their wisdom and their strength as you move through your process as well. So we begin on February 6th. And all of the information you really need to know about it is at kateanthony.com slash decided. And you should also be getting information in your inbox. Check your email for more information, but check out the website. There's an application there right there that you can um, fill out and, and join us. It's going to be an amazing program. Okay. So to today's episode. Today I have with me Priscilla Gilman. She is the author of The Critic's Daughter, which is coming out in paperback in just a couple of weeks. She's also the author of The Anti-Romantic Child, a story of unexpected joy. She is a former professor of English literature at both Yale and Vassar. More than anything, Priscilla is one of my oldest, oldest friends. Priscilla and I grew up together. We met when we were, I was probably six or seven. Um, and her sister was my, you know, one of my, was my best friend in school. And because they're only like 14 months apart, Priscilla was my uh, constant companion along with her sister, Claire. And I have her on the podcast because the critic's daughter is about, is this incredible book. It's incredible. It is an incredible memoir about her relationship with her father, who was a very, very well-known and sort of famed theater critic in New York in the 60s and 70s. And there, the divorce that she 
endured from with her when her parents got divorced is like this book is basically a how to never get divorced book. Um, it's a how to how to not do it. <laughs> so Priscilla is here with me today. I'm going to get right to it because it's actually a pretty long episode. We go in and out of our sort of personal connection. It's very hard to have a solely professional um, interview when you're interviewing somebody that you've known for your entire life. <laughs> so we go in and out of the, the personal and the professional, um, kind of all over the map. I hope you enjoy this sort of glimpse into uh, my childhood and this really, really important story of Priscilla's parents' divorce and, you know, the damage that it did to her. And I mean, not permanent damage, but you know what I mean, <laughs> how difficult it was and some of the mistakes that were made in, look, in the 1970s, nobody knew how to do it. Um, Priscilla's parents, my parents did it terribly, <laughs> but here we are. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Priscilla Gilman. Okay, Priscilla Gilman, who I will probably never call Priscilla again in in the pro course of this podcast. Priscilla Gilman, thank you so much for being here. Katie, you're in my <laughs> book. You're in the deepest part of my heart. I love you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so proud of you. Oh my God. Yes. I am so happy to be here. Your book, The Critic's Daughter, as we were just talking about before we hit record, is really essentially a manifesto on what not to do when getting divorced. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yep. It is also an, um, a beautiful homage to your father. Can you, for the audience who may not know, who, who was your father and how did this book come to be? Yeah. So my father, Richard Gilman, was a professor at the Yale School of Drama for 30 years he started there in 1967, and he had been a theater critic. He had been the theater critic for Newsweek in the 60s. He had taught for Bob Brewstein at Columbia, and Bob Brewstein, Robert Brewstein, who just died, some of your, your audience might know him, was building up the Yale School of Drama and hired my father as like one of the most important theater critics in the country. And he taught everybody. He taught actors. He taught Henry Winkler. I actually got to interview Henry Winkler this year, and he was like, oh, your dad directed me in a play in 1970. So he right. actually directed students. He directed Meryl Streep. She was one of his favorite students. He taught Chris Durang, Wendy Wasserstein, lots of playwrights, tons of actors, directors, et cetera, dramaturgs, critics. And he was a drama critic for The Nation in the 80s. He wrote a lot for The New York Times. He was the author of seven books, including a memoir. Uh, Katie, his memoir, Faith, Sex mystery. I mean, no one I will mean, ever come up with a better title than that, right? No, I mean, they will not, nor will they write <laughs> a more sort of uh, shocking and exposing memoir for their children to read. Oh, uh, yeah, Katie. It came out oh. when uh, I was in high school and it was on the cover of the New York Times Book Review. How far have we fallen as a culture? Like now, a theater critic writing about converting from Judaism to Catholicism would never be on the cover of the New York Times Book Review. But then we were in a different era. He was a public intellectual. And the reason that he he converts um, from Judaism to Catholicism in his 20s during his first marriage, along with his Jewish wife, my father was married three times. We can talk about his divorces as well. He fell away from the Catholic Church in large part because of his guilt about his affairs during his first marriage, and in particular, his what we would today call BDSM tendencies, mm -hmm. um, which actually were sort of mild to me. Like reading this now, I was like, but he was overcome with shame and guilt. He writes about going to prostitutes. He writes about having affairs. He writes about wanting women to wrap their powerful thighs around his neck and pee on him. You know, when I'm in high school and it's getting reviewed in Vogue magazine and people are calling him a pervert and a horrible, disgusting man, and my sister and I, my sister being your best friend... I being the sister or best friend of yours, Katie, um, because we <laughs> so, knew each other since we were six. Well, I know. I always feel like that both of you were. So, okay. So, so your father, we're, you know, we are talking 1970s, New York City, intellectual. It's like that Woody Allen, I hate to use his name, certainly. <laughs> <in the presence. laughs> yeah. We can get into uh, that. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. But you're um, right. 
But like for 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 an audience who may not have been raised on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in the 1970s, right? Like that it's that evocative time, right? Exactly. And we should probably tell everybody who my mom was too cuz that's part of it, right? This is true. And and who yes. she still is. Right? And who she still is working, uh, traveling around the world, doing right. great. My mother Lynn Nesbet um is a literary agent. And in the 1970s, she married my father in 1966. I was born in 1970. She was already representing in her early 30s, representing Tom Wolfe, Michael Crichton, Toni Morrison, later Joan Didion, Anne Rice, tons and tons of like from high to low and everybody in between. Everybody. Exactly. Exactly. And so your and your mom, one of my favorite, one of my favorite sort of sort of inside memories is like, is watching Misery. And at the end of Misery, they're like at the table and he's like, well, N- Lynn Nesbitt is, you know, interested or something wants the rights. Oh <laughs> my gosh, you. Katie, I had forgotten that. Anyway, so you've got these parents who are like intellectual and literary I don't want to say elite, but yes, in a in many in many senses, right? Mm-hmm. An academic, incredibly sort of academically astute and and literary figures, huge figures in the literary world at that time. Yeah. yeah. And so describe a little bit what it was like in your childhood with the two of them. Like you sort of this experience, and I, and I really recognized it in reading the book, the experience of your mom's was sort of a ghost. She sort of she yeah. sort of drifted in and out, like, and she's very elegant. Like Lynn is just incredibly elegant and almost ethereal. And she's sort of, right. I just remember like, you know, being in the, in the kitchen in the breakfast nook playing clue and Carrie was always, <laughs> I snog just. <laughs> oh my God. The clue in the breakfast nook, Katie, that's where yep. it was at. Yep. Party in the breakfast nook. Party in the breakfast nook. And then your mom would just sort of be floating. Right. Mm. And so, and you were very connected to your father. Yes. Extremely connected to my father. I was, my father adored both me and Claire. We were his girls and he loved playing with us, but I was his first daughter and I was more into sports. My sister was more of a girly girl. My Mm. dad raised me. My mother always joked to be the son he never had because my father did have a son from his first marriage, but my brother was very artsy and into piano and a painter and gay and not into sports. And I was like New York Giants, New York Mets, like watching all the sports with him, like reading when I was three and writing stories and having him look at them and tell me, you know, how to make them better. And like, and I also acted and I did theater. Katie, you and I were the act. Remember, we did theater. Until we, we did. Claire we did, did not and- do theater. Clary did not. And your oh. parents were like, that's nice, Sid. That's not what you're doing for Hooper. <laughs> we will not support this in any way, shape, or form. Any way, shape, or form. And I remember my mom saying, you know, Liz is a very talented actress. Like, we would watch her on, on the soap. And <laughs> and then we saw her in a couple of plays where she was doing serious theater. My mother was like, don't let her give you any ideas. <laughs> you know, seriously. And, she was like, I'll let you ghost it. Liz is my mom. Liz yeah. is my Liz, mother. Liz, Liz, is, Liz is Katie's mom, a, a great actress. Uh, and she was raising, and you live like four blocks from us. I mean, we were in and out of each other's apartments all the time. All the time. But I will all the time. say, in terms of my mom, my mom hired uh, Carrie, my third parent, who's a big character in the book. I consider her my third parent. Oh, Just absolutely. Just as important an influence on me as my, as my two biological parents. And my mother floated in and out like a beneficent ghost. Mm. Not like a scary, you know, oh, problematic no, ghost. No, 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 no. You know, she loved us. She delighted us. She was like, oh, girls, wonderful. You're playing Clue. Mm-hmm. I'm going out to a movie premiere. See you later. You know, um, she, she, was a, like, she was a career woman at a time when it was really, and and not just a career woman. She was heads and shoulders above most yes. men in her industry at a time exactly. when that really didn't happen. Exactly. And she dressed the part. I mean, she would, I, yes. I describe it in the book as like putting on the armor of her power yes. suit. Her Chanel shoots or whatever. You're right. Exactly. I mean, absolutely. 100%. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And yes. I think my parents had this dynamic, Katie, where my father supported my mother wholeheartedly in her ambitions. 
He really believed in her. He was 13 years older. We thought turned out to be 15 years, but you know, cause we found out later that he lied. Why? About his age. I know um, which was oh so bizarre. I was so like, if bizarre. you're going to, if you're going to shave off, you know, years, why not 10? Why two? Why, why two? Make any sense. Yeah. So strange. Um, but you know, my mother married him on the rebound. She had had her heart broken devastate in a devastating way. Her first great love, the writer, Donald Barthelme, who was also her client, Mm. who went to Europe on a fellowship and sent her a telegram saying, girl pregnant, send money, still love you. And my mother was like, uh, blah, blah, blah. and yeah. she met my father and my father had been married. He had a son. My mother fell in love with his son. My mother was like, oh my God, this is a brilliant guy. He's like a Jewish divorced intellectual. This is a great way to like say to my parents in the Midwest, look, I'm a cool New Yorker now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my father revered Donald Barthelme. Donald Barthelme revered my father. My mother tells me later she married my father to hold on. It's mm-hmm. so warped. I mean, for your audience, like this is yes. all about like patterns. And yes, she, my mother, I would say was co- very codependent. She trained me well to be codependent, but mm-hmm. she was like, this is a brilliant guy. He will be a great father. It, the ecosystem that they set up really worked well until it didn't. Like she outsourced to my nanny. Um, my father worked from home much of the time. She yeah. never had any guilt about going out because she knew we were being really well taken care of. She was extremely loving. She worked really hard. She just wasn't around a lot. And she's the kind of parent, I don't know, as some of your your audience might relate to this, that is much better with you as you get older. She doesn't really care about babies or getting down on the floor and playing. But then when you get right. older, she's like a great person to watch movies with and take you shopping and have dinner with and all those sorts right. of things. Right, right. And your dad was on the floor giving, you know, the you know piggyback animal rides and like in the trenches as a father. Oh, Katie, in the glorious, joyful trenches. He would be like, hello, Paddington. How are you? How's your day? He would talk Patty. to our stuffed animals. Katie. <laughs> Katie, Patty. Patty. I mean, we we, we shared a Paddington obsession, <laughs> <We> everyone. <laughs> we had our Paddington bears. I still have mine. I still have and, mine, too. I still yep. have mine, too. And we oh. had many, many costumes and outfits for them. And we had entire oh. scenarios. You know, one of the things that I love about your book is it really brings back. It was like it made me so nostalgic for that time of just pure, unbridled, joyful play. Yes. And it was something that your father really encouraged and fostered in you guys. Yes. And that I remember partaking in it, you know, copiously at your house. Oh my God, Katie, because then we had another person who could, and you were great at doing the different voices and creating the different characters. And my father always loved you the most of all our friends and believed in you and I don't know if you remember we would often catch him eavesdropping or like peeking around the corner because he just loved watching this place so much and he would be the minister when we would have the weddings where we would marry our Madame Alexandra dolls like there weren't a lot of men so we're like we need the poop you know your listeners will relate to this we're like we got two viable men and ten beautiful (laughs) (laughs) so they have to marry the penguins right but my father (laughs) would be the minister and uh it was so funny because he was like he had been jewish he'd been catholic he ended up marrying a shinto buddhist uh protestant was the one religion he never was but he was the reverend gilman in our weddings also just for your audience katie and i and claire we went to the same church we went to the same Sunday school. We got stories about that for another time. <laughs> we did. We did. We literally, <laughs> we lived our lives together. When, okay, so Rosie was was your puppy, your oh. adorable puppy who did who got very carsick and puked orange juice <laughs> on the way up to Weston. <laughs> In Weston, Connecticut, where they had, where you had your country house. Oh my God. And we, does she love that like we had country, you had a country house, like, like as if, as if that was like country house and city house that everybody had. Everybody had because the New York City apartment cost $150 a month for a four-bedroom apartment on Central Park West. And the house in Weston, my parents sold it for $100,000. I know. They, when you said that in the book, you're like, we, and we, they sold it for $100,000. I was like, somebody get me a chair because I'm going to fall over. Okay. So I want to get to, you know, eventually this, this, this whole thing collapses when... You start to hear murmurs, right? There's the, there's, 
there was something that happened before the conversation in the kitchen, right? Where you were starting to get a little glimmer that something was not right. Yep. Yep. You know, it was, it was interesting. So it was like the late seventies and a few of my parents' friends announced that they were splitting up. And I just remember noticing that like my father was very stricken and we had spent the summer in Italy, another thing, like we spent the summer in Italy. It sounds so fancy with this family that were professors. Um, but he was like, oh, this is so sad. They're splitting up. And I remember my mother getting this weird look in her eyes, like she was thinking. And I just thought like, she doesn't seem that upset. And they would have these fights where they would yell at each other. And Claire and I would say, Claire would cry really hard and say, are you two going to get divorced? And they would always adamantly say, we will never. Okay. Lesson number one, everyone. Yes. Never tell your children that you will never get divorced because no one ever knows what will happen. Right. And we were like, okay. And that was the thing we trusted them on more than anything else. It was like, People fight, but divorce, incomprehensible. Never going right. to happen, happen ever. Mm-hmm. Okay. We get Rosie in the fall of 1980. And my mother has been telling my father, I hate dogs. I don't want to get a dog. My father gets the dog. It seems like things are getting worse. They're fighting more. And I'm like, oh, it's probably because of the dog. My mother is spending a lot more time away in California. I just feel like things are kind of becoming even worse. I'm in fifth grade. You're in fourth grade. But Katie is in fourth grade, everyone. Claire is in fourth grade. (laughs) And it's the fall of 1980. And there's a night when they go into the kitchen and Katie knows this kitchen and they shut. It's like these louvered wooden doors. And I hear them pulling shut and they never shut those doors. And I hear them talking. And I I have this journal. It's a Holly Hobby journal that I wrote in. Mm -hmm. So I was able to look at it and I'm writing please don't let them get divorced. Please don't let them get divorced. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. Just please don't let them get divorced. I hear the doors open. My mother calls us in, um, me and my sister in, and my father leaves. And she tells us that they're going to have a trial separation. And Claire says, (laughs) (laughs) it's so cute. Claire goes, what did daddy do? Why is he going on trial? (laughs) And I just remember this so vividly. And she starts to cry. And my mom's like, no, 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 no. He didn't do anything wrong. It has nothing to do with court. (laughs) Don't worry. Little did she know. know, For many, 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 many years. For many, many years. I remember sitting there and I'm like, digging my nails into my tights. I remember it. I remember my, my nail breaks through the fabric of my tights. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at my mother and I'm like, she's out. Like, this is it. This is not a trial. And this is not a separation. I've never seen her look so certain. I've never seen her. She looks more peaceful than I've ever seen her and something, and this is going to happen. I know it. And for the next two months, we're not allowed to tell anyone. They say, don't tell your grandparents, don't tell your babysitter, don't tell Carrie, don't tell anyone at school. We're going to go to Christmas in Illinois with your grandparents. My mother's very conservative Republican parents. And we're going to act like we're, we're a happy family and everything's fine. And after New Year's, your father will move out. So we have to go through this whole holiday season pretending. So lesson number two, please don't put your children in that position. If you're not going to get separated until (laughs) after the holidays, don't tell them till after the holidays. (laughs) Oh, and lesson number three, Katie, rewind. That night I went into my father's study in the apartment because I felt like a big one. Mm -hmm. This is a big one. And my father is crying and he says, you know, I didn't want this. I'm so devastated. I don't want to lose our family. And I am just like, my goodness. Um, so he, so basically they're revealing to us, my father is revealing, this is not a mutual decision. This is not something I want. Not what we know to do now. Let's just Exactly. Exactly. Crying hysterically. Mm -hmm. When he does move out in January, he almost immediately gets reinserted into our lives because my mother goes away and she lets him come back to the apartment and stay with us, which was kind of confusing. Yeah. And he, cried on one night of that stay after he had gotten mad at Claire for, you know this, Katie, she's a spiller, (laughs) spilling on the game board, spilling on the game board. And then he was apologizing to me. And then he said, you know that I love you girls more than anything in the world. And sometimes I think I'd kill myself if it wasn't for you girls. And 
from, and I talk in the book about how like, this is a mantra that I, I just, I have this, my, sometimes I kill myself if it wasn't for you girls. And it's imprinted on me. My father's very survival is my responsibility. And in a way I had someone say to me in an interview and that my book came out, uh, it's coming out in paperback on February 13th, but it came out last February saying to me, you know what, in a way you're still doing that because you're keeping your father alive. His survival is your responsibility. Yes. In writing this book, you have sort of immortalized him even more. You certainly brought him back a little bit back from the, from the, right? Because, and in a way, like it's such a way of honoring him, Sid, because who he was and what he did was so, it, as you say in the beginning of the book, sort of this bygone era of yes. intellectuals. Like there's this, this core group of New York City uh, literary theatrical intellectuals that sort of dead, like they're all dying off and yes. we don't have much of a replacement for that. Absolutely. So You're right. So right about resurrected that, that in writing mm -hmm. this book. Katie, I love it that you, that's such a good insight because, you know, the book started and I think this will be interesting to a lot of the people listening. Um, my agent who had been my best friend in Yale grad school and represented me on my first book, which is a memoir, a parenting memoir about raising my son who is autistic and also talking about my divorce from his father. So there's a divorce component to that one too. She always wanted me to write a book about my father. And I was very resistant to doing it because I think I felt it would be too painful. It would require too much excavation. It would be risky in terms of my mother and exposing things about her private life. And I just resisted it, resisted it. And she talked me into doing it by saying, mm. why don't you do it as a book about the milieu? a book about this cohort, a book about this lost intellectual, artistic, theatrical New York City. And that's how it started. But then as soon as she sold the book and the proposal, she was like, okay, now it's time to focus it on your father. Okay, now we're going to talk about <laughs> your dad. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of this like artistic milieu, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Stanley Kaufman was my mother's mentor in grad school. So what? I did not know that at all. So this is oh a, my God. this is a wow. very, I mean, he's a very big part of the book and he's a very big part of your father's life and your life. And you reveal some things about him in the book that my mother was absolutely devastated by. <laughs> he made my father seem chaste and pure. Let's just put it that way. Right. And my mother was Ooh. like, I never wanted to know that about Stanley Kaufman. <laughs> Oh my God. So funny. Anyway. Oh, hilarious. So, okay. Oh. So, okay. Sid, so, so now you, you have already, right. You're now in your childhood, your father was this wonderful, exuberant, playful supporter of all things, you know, all of your pursuits and all of that. And he was volatile and had rage problems and all sorts of things that today we might look at a little bit differently. Yes. He was also an addict, Katie. I mean, I right. will say, I mean, you know, he was addicted yeah. to cigarettes. He died of lung cancer. He died. Right. I, I will always say he died of an addiction. Yes. And I think, and he smoked cigars and cigarettes compulsively. He struggled with writer's block. He struggled with depression. He, uh, I think was self-medicating with cigarettes. I think he needed medication desperately. And, and alcohol and sex, right? And I mean, alcohol I think, and sex. Exactly. Right. And gambling, mm -hmm. actually. Oh, right. Right. I mean, he, right. he never got he that out that. of control. He stopped He that. was able to stop the gambling. Yeah. Right. Yes. But clearly yes. there's a lot of trauma in his childhood and whatever led him to this point. And as his child, you, and, and there was this sort of disparity between how he treated you and how he treated Claire and Claire got sort of the, the, the sort of bum end of his rage and you, because you, and part of this is because you as the oldest child and as somewhat the favored child of, of your father, you learned how to be, I mean, you learned codependence at a very young age. You learned how to fawn 
and and write how to take care of him. You were going to take care of him. And Claire was kind of having none of it. And so then she got the brunt of his rage, right? <laughs> Claire was so much healthier. And I was so envious of her because she would be like, nope, not doing it. You know, she like talked <laughs> back and it drove both my parents crazy. But the other thing was, you know, Claire and I, it, it's just like luck of the temperament, the biology. Like I was blessed with this kind of happy temperament and I slept through the night. And I was good. Claire was colicky and didn't sleep through the night. And so it's like chicken and egg, right? Like she's crying, so he's getting annoyed. And then he's getting annoyed, and so she's crying more. And I'm smiley as a baby, and I'm getting a lot of positive reinforcement for it. And I say in the book, you know, and I think another reason why I so wanted to talk to you in particular, Katie, who's, and Katie was an amazing actress, by the way, everyone, just so you know. Please go back and watch her and everything that there is to watch. You know, the theatrical nature of, I, yeah. I divided the book into acts. You uh, did. There's a lot I know. of scenes involving the theater, characters mm-hmm. from plays and movies. But also, you know, I, I say at one point, I, and I use theatrical metaphors, and I say I was cast in the role of the easy, good girl. And I accepted the role gladly, and it wasn't a stretch for me because that was what my temperament was. But eventually, I did not allow myself to stretch and and show other sides of my personality, right? I mean, it became like the role and the person smashed into one. Right. And eventually it caught up to you to a degree that you had to take, you know, drop out of school, not drop out, but like take yeah. time out of school yeah. and like actually manage your health Yes, because yes. your mental health was completely overcome by this. I look back now and I'm like, okay, and I want to say one more thing about it, a, a couple more lessons for, for yes. listeners, um, yes. which I'm sure you all know because you've listened to Katie's incredible podcast. Lesson number five or six, I don't know where we are at this point. I don't um, my mother refused to help my father financially, even though oh, she made yeah. a ton more money than he did. And today he would get in a second, he would get spousal support and he would get, they would say, yes. you have to provide funds to set up an apartment so that you can see your kids. Right. But my mother was like, oh, he's a man. He's, you know, my, it's so weird because my mother was such a feminist. But in this, she was kind of retrograde. It was very odd. Yes. Like the yes. law had just changed in New York where it didn't matter, like assets gained over the course of a marriage, you had to share them equitably. But she was revolted by the idea that a man was asking for money. And so they were in court for about or in legal proceedings for like eight to nine years. It took them that long to get divorced. And eventually, she had to pay him. Right. But during that whole time. And all of the attorneys. And all of the attorneys. Exactly. But during, the, it, it made their relationship so much more acrimonious and bitter than it needed to be. And she would talk about him contemptuously. Like, and it's not like he wasn't working. He was working like a, like a dog, Reardon, the dog that I played in our, in our, in our games, Katie, um, you know, is. he was, a, he was a professor. He, he took on a job as a drama critic. He was writing books. He was making the most money one can make doing those things that don't make a lot of money. Right. right. But right. what else could he do? He was in his late fifties. It meant that Claire and I were not able to have a sleepover with our father at all for about a year or two because he was couch surfing essentially. And he had so little money and was so worried about it that every time we saw him at a restaurant on the Upper West Side, you know, he'd take us to the cheapest restaurants he could. He would ask us to split a dish. And Claire would say, this isn't enough food. And I'd kick her under the table and she'd be like, no, stop kicking me. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't out that I'm (laughs) kicking you. Oh, my God. And then my father would get mad. And so it was just, and then I, you know, I say there's an anecdote in the book that's really resonated with a lot of people. Anyone who's had parents who've struggled during separation or divorce, and I'm sure with many of your listeners, like we're in a McDonald's and I see him furtively Mm -hmm. lifting up the tubs that have the salt and pepper and the ketchup and mustard and sugar and pouring them into his bag. Oh, I didn't realize he had actually poured the whole, I thought he was just sort of like squirreling them away. And then later on, you were like the oyster crackers that like someone was still hungry and like handing the oyster crackers. I was like, those are from Tony's. The oyster crackers were from Tony's. The oyster Crackers were from Tony's Italian Kitchen, RIP Tony's, West 79th Street, where he would make us split spaghetti and meatballs and cut the third meatball in half. Yeah. That's how miserly the guy was. And miserly, struggling, I don't know. Right. I mean, listen, that was my childhood, right? Because I was raised 
by a woman who was similar to your dad, a professor or actually in grad school, not even like, and your, and your dad was actually not even a full professor. I mean, that was the thing. I actually did not know that Priscilla. I did not know that until I read your book. Katie, my father did not even have a college degree. Right. I did. I mean, it's unbelievable. He was an adjunct. He had to renegotiate his contract every year and he was paid probably the equivalent of like 70 or $80,000 a year now living in New York city in the 1980s. Not a lot. Like that's how I was raised, right? Like we, we only went to Tony's when my godfather took me, took us to dinner, right? My mother could not, we could not afford to go to a restaurant. Like it never happened. Right. So, but you had like this extreme opposites where you had your mom who could, you know, was traveling around the world and she was this incredible powerhouse. And then your dad, who was just sort of left to the wolves in a sense, right? He and really was. To, and he it really just, was. It breaks my heart. And then, of course, right? So there's this whole thing about you're not, not only was your mom very against giving your dad any money, right? But she also said some very, very, and this is lesson number whatever, very <laughs> inappropriate things. about. And you're, Now, I will say in the book, as you're reading the book, your mother comes off not very, not very well in, you know, at, for, for quite a while until you sort of have this discovery of what it was really like to be married to your dad. Yes. And the sexual proclivities and all of these things that you didn't know at the time. Right. Yep. And, but she would, but she would let on these things that were, she would say things to you that were just they were short of, but your dad's a sex addict. And like yes, all, yes. Right. Tell tell us tell some of the stories about the, some of the really really upsetting things that she said to you when you were younger about your dad. And now a word from our sponsor, Primus Bank. So listen, you guys, when you get divorced, you know you're going to have to open a new bank account. I strongly recommend that you open an account at an institution that is separate from your ex or soon-to-be ex. And I highly recommend Primus Bank just for this. So Primus means first, and this bank is the first of its kind. So a lot of banks will say they have no fees or they're free, but there's some sort of condition or hoop to jump through. Not with Primus. When you have a Primus Perks checking account, you're going to earn 50 cents back on every single purchase that you make on your debit card, literally every single purchase. So a lot of banks collect interchange fees from merchants when you use your debit card. But Primus is the first bank that I've ever heard of that wants to give those perks back to you to the tune of 50 cents per purchase. So if you buy gas, 50 cents back. Buy a cup of coffee, 50 cents back. Buy Pay a bill with your debit card online, 50 cents back. Plus, as I said, this account is free. There are no minimums, no conditions, no overdraft fees, no account fees, literally no shenanigans. You just need a dollar to open the account. There are other perks too. There's free ATM use nationwide, and you can even get a free pack of checks. They are member FDIC, which means that they are FDIC insured, so you don't have to worry about the safety of your money. And if you like talking to a real human as I very much do, there is a 24-7 call center. It is not farmed out. It is real people in Virginia that work for this bank. So Primus has created a hub on their site dedicated to people going through a financial change because of breakup, divorce, or separation. So if you visit PrimusBank.com slash DSG, You'll find everything you need to know. They will break down the steps on how to get started navigating your new financial picture. And they even have resources and articles on how to protect your credit score during divorce and other things like that. So head on over to premisebank.com slash DSG for terms and conditions. Again, that's premisebank.com, P-R-I-M-I-S, bank. Dot com slash DSG. And now back to our show. So I was 10 
when my parents split up and I was 10 when this incident happened. So this was when my father was staying in the apartment on one of my mother's trips to California. And I found a letter that my father wrote to his first wife in which he asked her essentially to dominate him, pee on him. It was like a sexual explicit letter that he left lying out. This was in his old office that Claire and I had then converted into a playroom. So I was just playing in it and I found this thing and I was like, and I went and I told my mother about it as soon as she got home, which speaks well of my relationship with my mom. Like you remember this, we had a very open relationship with my mom. I could talk to her about anything. That was a really positive aspect of her as a parent. And it was like the floodgates opened. Katie, she starts telling me, oh, I've been protecting you from this kind of thing for years. You know, he's wanted, and, and believe me. I never did any of these things with him. Like, she wants to reassure me. Don't start to think that your parents have this weird sex life. As I'm writing about this, Katie, I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, the facts really don't speak well for my mom. Like, I was not mad at her when she was saying these things to me when I was a little kid. I wasn't even mad at her when I started writing the book. And then as I started writing it and more and more people who read it in galley started telling me, oh, my God, I can't believe your mother said these things to you. She didn't say them to turn me against my father. I will say that. I, I will swear that until my dying day. Yeah. She literally, it was almost like she said, you know, he had these, all this pornography, this hardcore pornography that he would hide under the cushions of the sofa and you and Claire would be playing there and I would be so afraid that you would find it. And then, I, and I'm almost thinking like, is she trying to find out if I did find it, right? Like she was oh. like, Priscilla knows. She stumbled right. onto this letter. I'd better give her the full picture so that she isn't freaked out. At the same time, she was also venting completely inappropriately to me. She was not in therapy. And I think it had been bottled up inside her for so long. They were terrible sexual mismatch. I don't think there's anything wrong with what my father wanted. And I always say today, there are a million websites he could go to and find a lot of people willing to do it all and more power to them and and good. No stigma, you know, stigma. My mother thought it was disgusting. And, you know, she was like the whole domination. My father wanted to be dominated. And I, Katie, you know what? If I think about it kind of psychoanalytically, I'm like, it sort of goes along with her not wanting to give him money, right? Like she was repelled by a weak man. Yes, but also she mm-hmm. did dominate him in she so did. many oh, ways. Katie, 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 Katie. <laughs> okay, Katie, you've nailed it. You've nailed it. They had a very successful BDSM relationship emotionally until they didn't. Right. Just not in the bedroom. Yes, that's right. That is it. Because he relied on her to be very stern with him and to say, go into your office and write 10 pages. Don't come out until you're done. And he, he, I mean, she ran everything. He went along with it. He went along with it. That's right. And that, and, and that turned him on, I'm sure. And like, he loved it that she was powerful. The whole thing about him supporting her ambitions and being a feminist, there was probably an element of, I love it that she's such a strong woman. Look at her stride into the world in her power suit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So, okay. So, you know, your so your mom, you know, she was in a sense, she was, and this is something that I think that 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 people uh struggle with a lot as they're getting divorced, is like, you know, I hear this all the time, but do, don't my kids need to know the truth? And when you come to your mom and you say, I found this letter, oh my God, right? Is it appropriate? And how old were you again when you found that letter? Ten. 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 Katie, I was ten. It's There's insane. no okay. It's not, it's not. It's not appropriate. No. <laughs> that, that's not a question anymore. Like it is no. not appropriate to then open the floodgates and say, well, actually, just so you understand the entire context of our marriage and divorce. Your father was he was a you know a sexual deviant or whatever she was. Well, she really did. She did That's use really words like that. She did use yeah. words like that. She said I didn't do any of those. Per- like she used the word perversion. She used very stigmatizing language around it. Now my father himself described himself that way in his memoir, which is so heartbreaking. You know, it was a different era. I always think like my father lived too soon in a way. Um, he, he didn't benefit from medication. He had so much guilt and shame about his sexual makeup. He went to prostitutes and he had affairs because he was married to people who didn't want to do what he wanted. Like he was a monogamous person, actually. He found the right woman. He had an amazing third marriage. One of the great love stories of all time, giving me a new hope, Katie, that maybe one day it's out there. 
you maybe know, someday, maybe someday, maybe someday, someday. Richard <laughs> Gilman will walk into our lives. <laughs> I don't want a Richard Gilman. I want more no, of a Yasuko. God, no. <laughs> I want Yasuko. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't need Dick. I want Katie, Yasuko. Katie, <laughs> Katie, I want Yasuko too. Please, Amelia Yasuko, if you're listening, please. <laughs> oh my God. And we and we would be good sister wives, but we don't want to be sister wives. We're monogamous. I, I want to just say a little bit more about like, so it wasn't even just that night, Katie. It was like then like a week later, she comes to me again and she's like, oh, I have more to tell you. And then she's like telling me that he had all these affairs and some of them were with his students, his graduate students, you know, and uh, as I said, like Stanley Kaufman, like all of the faculty in the 60s and 70s at Yale, or not all of them, but a large proportion of them were having affairs. Having these um, affairs, yep. Doesn't make it okay. I was absolutely repelled. And I have to say the sexual stuff never disgusted me. I was just like, oh, pee, whatever. I just sort of brushed it <laughs> off. But it was more, it was the infidelity and it was the fact that my father seemed to have this secret life, right? Like she was like, yes. when he was in New Haven for those two days a week, that's when it was happening. And I was like, oh right. my God. Right. And here it was like, you're home and he goes to New Haven for a couple of days a week and then daddy's home and like, he's on the floor with us and we're playing and then, and then in, now in, 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 I was going to say in your adult mind, but now it's actually your 10, yeah. you are realizing that that's actually not what was happening. Well, like he was, he was not up at Yale teaching. He was, but he was having these, all these other affairs and, and sort of misdeeds and, and to have this I guess sort of the impact of having this image of your father, which you have always, like you still, you still call him daddy. There I do. The book you call him daddy, <laughs> I right? Do. I still call my dad daddy too. I know but, you do. I love that. But I also think that's a function of like our relationships with our, with our fathers that are not necessarily, we're never quite the healthiest, but whatever, right? That we still want to be their little girl and all of this, right? I think it's our job as co-parents, right, to somewhat preserve that for our children. Absolutely, yes. And your mom took just took a pin to it. And I get why she did it in many ways. Like, we didn't have this information back then. We didn't have books and podcasts about how to deal with your, you know, kids and divorce. And, you know, I really wish that she had said, oh, honey, I am so sorry you found that. That must be really weird and uncomfortable and scary. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that was a story daddy was working on. Like, you're too young yes. to understand yes. where, why that would have been true. Like, exactly. Or right? Katie, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, my father, it's interesting. My father, I, I, for my mother, I, and I realized this later when she tells me, when she gives me the context that she had married him on the rebound, that she had never been in love with my father you know, all the affairs. And I start to realize, oh my God, my mother was really struggling and really suffering. And this was just a terrible marriage for her. And I never blamed her for ending it. And I understood sure. always why she had to. But what I did never quite understand until I did all this work in writing memoir um, and, you know, going through it for my first book as well, is realizing just like how easy it would have been to make it so much easier for me and Claire if she had just given him enough money to have an apartment where we could go and we could be with him. And he did eventually get his own apartment like five years after they split. And it was, but he still didn't have a lot of money because he, he, she gave him like little teeny bit and it wasn't, and um, all the furniture and all the accoutrements in that apartment were from our Weston country house. And that was really weird because it was like, oh my gosh, like this is the bed that my parents used to sleep in. It was haunted in all these ways. It was, and there was just this continual feeling of like every milestone. Oh my God, my parents are going to have to be in the same room for my graduation. Yes. Oh right. my God, my wedding. How are they going to yes. handle this? Right. And my father was old, never said a negative word about my mother ever. Not ever. one negative word ever. No. And my mother trashed my father right, you know, right, left and center every Absol chance she got. Abs including at your wedding, which just, oh, ugh, that broke my heart. There was a point at which you came sort of face to face with the physical aspects and ailments of the stress of this divorce and, and your life in between the two of them. Mm -hmm. 
uh, what's the word for you're just sort of the bullseye between the two of them. Really? Mm-hmm. Claire somehow managed to skirt it. Like she, she, did. You know, she went away and you know, you went to Yale, you were with your dad all the time. You had this, you know, ongoing relationship and Claire like went away. <laughs> she was oh, out to the Midwest. And she went to the Midwest. Like, she has boundaries. <laughs> Claire was like, I have boundaries. And you were in this, you know, you had to come face to face with your codependence of, being the one who was going to keep daddy alive and make sure that daddy didn't die and make sure that daddy was okay and make sure that daddy had, you know, an an apartment or, you know, that, that mommy wasn't like hurting daddy more. Right. And you were, and then at a certain point you had to kind of confront this. Yeah. I mean, I started breaking down. I look back to high school now and I see like, I had all these sinus issues and I'm Mm -hmm. like, this was repressed stress sadness, grief. My, Cause my mother was very much like, she never offered therapy or thought that we needed therapy in any way. Right, and you know, I was like, move on, chin up, everything's great. And then I get to Yale for the beginning of my sophomore year. I became an academic super achiever as a way of uniting my parents. Right. And that was the only thing I would ever hear them talk in a friendly voice about, oh, you know, Sid want Katie calls me Sid everyone, which is what my parents called me. <laughs> and you know, Sid won the best English student at, at Brearley, and she got an early to Yale. And wow, and this is amazing. And then I did this honors program my first year at Yale, and I won the top student prize in this. And I remember hearing it, and my only thought was, oh, this is gonna make both my parents really happy. And then feeling empty and thinking, what can I do next? What am I gonna do now? Oh, and wow. I went back to school for the beginning of my sophomore year and I got another sinus infection and I was exhausted and I was like, I have to, and I did drop out of school. I mean, I called my parents and I was, and I was terrified and I said, I need to come home. And I finally went into therapy, not the best therapy. Everyone, if you read my book, you will see what not to tell someone who's the child of divorce, right? When he's yes. basically, being, he was my mother's psychiatrist. He was your mom's Martha. therapist. Like for one thing, like right there, like he was your mom's. So then that's not like everything about it. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. I <laughs> she know. She finally goes to therapy and then she gets this guy. <laughs> and I get this guy who's like, and I start caretaking him because his wife is dying of cancer and he's falling asleep and calling me Patricia. And I'm like, oh, sweet Dr. T, I need to take care of you. Like replaying, like right, just replaying. like replaying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, yes. you know, to kind of s- summarize the next 10 years or so, say that my recovery kind of proceeded in fits and starts because my father has a very serious heart attack when I'm in my early 20s. And then he's diagnosed with terminal lung cancer when I am 27. Mm-hmm. And he lives for another nine years, but and I get married very young and I want to make this like beautiful nuclear family, intact family that I never had. And I have children very young for my cohort. Mm-hmm. I have my first baby when I'm 28 and my marriage doesn't work out. And my father, um, I'm, I'm getting divorced around the same time that my father is really dying. You know, I did everything differently with my divorce. Um, I, I nested. I made every effort to... I I do speak negatively about him to my kids, but in the way we all speak negatively about people we love, right? It's like, oh, daddy's doing this and he's annoying me. And we would fight in front of each other. But essentially, we did mediation. We worked with a social worker. We did everything you advise. We wrote a parenting plan. You know, we didn't argue over assets. We worked it out completely equally. We nested for the first year. Uh, He spends every holiday. I mean, I'm very lucky that I'm able to have this kind of relationship with him because he's a beautiful person and I love him dearly. And I don't think that, you know, I've, I've encountered other people who are like, how can I do that with mine? And I'm like, well, yours is actually abusive. And so you can't. That's right. And that's, that's okay. Right. And that's okay. That's right. right. So yes, I mean, it is, I talk about this all the time about like, it's kind of luck of the draw. It's luck right? of the draw. And sometimes you don't know how they're going to be until you start to, divor- until you start divorcing them. And then you're like, oh wow, they're actually, Yes. incredibly abusive or emotionally immature. The only way they know how to handle this is by being, you know, horrific. But I think you and Richard went through so much together between his mom's death, your dad's death, like all of the- Our child with autism. Your yeah. child with autism, right? You guys, yeah. somehow you guys, I mean, you chose a good man. It didn't, he wasn't the I right the good person. man for you, but yes. it was 
Right. And so you were able to have this wonderful split and divorce. And I, I love sort of the full circle of the fact that you have been able to do this so differently than your parents did, you know, and I, my parents too. I mean, I feel like we did the same. My, my parents used to scream at each other over, over the top of my head. My memories of your parents are being very acrimonious with each other. Oh, yes. And, awesome. and you feeling very cold. Which, I mean, I'm here, everybody, as a witness and somebody who was around <laughs> and actually had sleepovers with Katie's father, sleepovers with Katie's mother. Like, I was going back and forth with those worlds with you. Yeah. And I remember it was almost like my parents were more, they didn't even speak to each other. Like, it was more alien. It was more these two. Your parents, it was, I felt like there was more, like, active oh, toxic so bitterness. Much. Yes. But, you know, I'm friends with both your parents on social media. I see their posts, you know, and I will say I'm really proud of them because they they worked it out eventually. They get along they so much better and they're supportive yeah. of each other. They both love you and they're united in that. Yes. And it was Emmett. It was, it was having a grandchild that just, I don't know what happened. It was like they both showed up for when Emmett was born all at the same time. Both sets of grandparents, like all descended on our tiny little house. and. And my parents started like getting along and I'm sitting there like, what? I don't know what's <laughs> happening. I'm totally postpartum. I'm like, I can't, like, I, I don't know. And I was so confused. It was like I was in the twilight zone. <laughs> wow. Like, you know, you feel like you're in the twilight zone anyway when you're postpartum. Pretty, I was kind of in the twilight zone when I was seeing it on social media. I was like, I was like, Liz? <laughs> I'm like, how are you getting along so well? It was crazy. But you know, the other thing I'm going to say, after my father died in the fall, it's so crazy. It's like been 18 years, but the fall of 2006, he died in Japan. I was not able to be there when he was, when he passed away. You know, I will say that I married my ex-husband in large part because he reminded me of the positive aspects of my father and the wonderful elements of our connection that he was very, you know, he, he was a fellow graduate student in English literature at Yale, and he was very into sports and dogs and kids and very down to earth, but he didn't drink and he never smoked. And he was very, you know, monogamous, not in any way out there. He wasn't prone to anger, all of those things. Um, it didn't eventually work out for a number of reasons that you can read my book and find out both of my books. After my father died, I started dating people who were more obviously similar to him in the sense that they were all of, like, I dated a bunch of musicians, artists, writers, right. critics, whatever Dark, it was. Darkness, the darkness. Darkness, darkness. Many of them had never been married. They struggled with monogamy. They teetered on the edge of insolvency or insanity, I say in the book. I like that, those two eyes. That worked <laughs> yes. out really well. <laughs> you know, they were, like, super exuberant and passionate and out there until the exuberance turned into rage. You know, there were all sorts of... And so, I mean, it's crazy. I look back at it and I'm like, I was just stumbling through the world. Yes. Grieving the loss, many losses of my father. I mean, Katie, you remember I, the first sentence of my book is, I lost my father for the first time when I was 10 years old. Right. And that's what the book is about, about all of these so many different kinds of losses. The loss of him physically in the home with me, the loss of the intact family, the loss of my image of my father as an innocent, playful family man above all else. The loss of my father to Japan when he eventually moves there. Yes, the loss right. of my father as a vigorous, healthy person, right, in all these ways. And it was so funny, Katie, because when that article, the profile in the New York Times came out, it was a week before my book came out. And I was really nervous, you know, because I blurred all these men together and I don't name them and I don't really give any sure. identifying characteristics. Like I went over it with the lawyer many times. So I start getting these texts. Hey, am I one of the rogues gallery? Am I one of the troubled men? And like many of them, I could say, no, no, that's not you. Don't worry. A few of them, I was like, yep, you're there, yep. but not named. Don't worry about it. Right. And, you know, that was something that I really, really, um, for a few years, just had a number of like these very, not all of them were relationships, not all of them were even physical, but emotional affairs, all sorts of things with just, uh, I mean, it was, it really was just um, grief catches up with you, loss catches up with you, you can postpone it, you can repress it, you can like, distract yourself from it, if you don't confront it head on, like, this is why I think what you do I mean, there's so many reasons why I think what you do is so amazing and so important, but it's re really, I mean, I would say, Katie, essentially what you're doing is you're helping people to be more mindful 
mm-hmm. at every stage. Yes. Right. You're helping yes. them. And, you know, I became a meditation teacher six years ago. I got certified to teach meditation. My first teaching experience was as an aerobics teacher. And, and then in between, I got a PhD at Yale, was a college professor, Yale ambassador. And now I'm a meditation teacher. So, you know, you and I are both, you know, I think, I think you're single. I don't know. I'm single right now. Yes, I am. Yep, um, totally. And any man listening to this, snatch this girl up in a sec. I, I can tell you I've known her. Either her one. Either one of us. <laughs> either one of us. We're ready for the fucking. We got New York, New York and LA. She's a coast. Exactly. <laughs> but if you want to date us, you got to be mindful. Yes. That's the key thing. You have to live. Um, You know, there's that codependency therapist, Lisa. I can't remember her last name. She talks about living below the veil and living above the veil. Mm-hmm. And um, you have to live above the veil. You you That's cannot right. be. And I, I know you know, Katie, that I did Dr. Romney's podcast. I think her assistant read the profile of me in the New York Times and they reached out to me. And they thought, because my mother also told me that my father was a narcissist at one point, that's something we haven't said, and that his love wasn't real because it was narcissistic projection. Yes. Don't ever say that to your child. Don't say to your child. She apologized for it. That's part of the emotional arc of the book, but she didn't really understand what narcissism was. Yeah. You know, Katie, I, I don't even, I think that this was off camera. I don't think this is part of the interview, but the... Romney is one of the most extraordinary people I have. I mean, that those two and a half hours. I interviewed her recently and I just adore her. Yeah, adore her. Isn't Mm -hmm. she just incredible? She stays in touch with me. She checks in with me. Two and a half hours with her was like the best therapy I've ever had. And the first thing she says to me is, your father's not a narcissist. (laughs) Not at all. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, this is about, no. this is a book about codependency. That's right. Uh, your father had incredible empathy. She said, in many ways, I was envious of you and your relationship with him because it was the opposite of a narcissist with their parents. That's right. That's it's right. like he was attuned to you. He That's was right. actually That's listening right. to you. Yes. I, as soon as I, as soon as, you know, I read that part about your mom saying that I was like, no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. That's not, not at all. Not at all. But it is a book about codependency. And it is a book about trying to save him. And it's a book about what happens when a child is parentified in this way. Absolutely. And then you're sort of trying to save all these, this, this, you know, your rogue gallery, right? To try to save all these other men who also, you know, as soon as your dad died, you couldn't save him. So you're going to go try to save all these other men, right? (laughs) And that didn't work. And then you went and you saved yourself. Katie. Yeah. (laughs) Katie. And you did it too. I mean, I feel like we've had these very analogous journeys in a weird way. Mm -hmm. It's true. Don't you think? Absolutely. We both had these kids who were somewhat quirky, different, <laughs> not following the typical path, right? In different Never. ways. In different ways, but very same, very similar, very similar. And similar. and we have had to do this this deep dive on codependency and become our own, you know, our our own advocates and learn exactly. who we are separate from these people that, you know, either in your case, you were trying to save. In my case, I I don't even know what I was doing. I was just treading water, trying to survive. We've done that work. And I think it's interesting that we're both single because one of the things that people ask me all the time is, but what if I'm alone forever? With the the codependence work that you and I have both done in in earnest, <laughs> the <laughs> oh my god, yes, the mindfulness work, the meditation, like all of the work that we have done in therapy and programs and all of it, we are no longer going to try to save anybody, and we're no longer going to settle. Katie, I couldn't agree with you more. And I will say, my mom, not going to name her age explicitly, but she's up there still gorgeous, traveling the world, working, incredibly vibrant, wonderful life, never wanted to get married again, uh, dated a bit, you know, off and on through the years, hasn't in a while, happy as a clam. Many people tell me she's her, um, their icon, their sort of aging icon. Yes. My mom, I, I really don't want a relationship unless it's like incredibly nourishing, fun, Mm -hmm wonderful. I think that's a huge part of our growth is learning to feel complete and whole and happy 
without that, either without us having to fix, save, rescue, make complete another person, or have another person come in and validate us. Absolutely. Yes. And some people then don't know how to be in relationship with that. Because if they're not those roles, they actually don't know where they belong. Right. Exactly. There are other ways to be intimate than saving or being saved. Exactly. And you know, it's so funny that very things that would have attracted me and drawn me 10 years ago are now like instant red flags. That's a no for me. It's not going to work. Same. Absolutely. Same. Not going there. Same, same, same. Okay. Sid, we could literally talk all night, but we're going (laughs) to, we're going to not. So the paperback is coming out. It is coming out in like what, two weeks in in three weeks on the 13th. On the 13th of the day before Valentine's Day. Yes, everybody. Get it for yourself. A Valentine's present to yourself. Yes. And I just want to say, like, really, again, I want to hammer home that not only is this book an incredible story, the, the surface of which we've basically scratched, it is so beautifully written. Priscilla did not you know, come out of Yale with a a doctorate in English literature for, you know, and then like write a shitty book. This is a beautifully written book. It's stunning. And Katie's a character in it. And I'm in it. I'm in it for Katie. Yep. Yep. Read it for me. (laughs) Oh, Katie, this was such a joy. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. I love you, Sid. I'm so proud of you too. And so tell, where can people find you? Obviously they can get the book anywhere. Anywhere. Um, if they want to follow along on the Priscilla Gilman journey. PriscillaGilman.com. Um, one Ellen Gilman dwells in Priscilla. Um, Facebook.com. Priscilla Gilman author. I'm on Twitter. Priscilla Gilman. Instagram. Priscilla Gilman. I was the first one. There are a few more, but I got all those domains. So. Oh, good for you. Very easy. Good yes. for you. All right. Yes. Sid, thank you so much for coming. Katie, I love you. I love you too, Sid. I hope to see you soon. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.